So how's your Thanksgiving planning coming? Come on, I know some of you have already started thinking about Thanksgiving. And you've been thinking whether you might go out of town or stay in town this year. It's only, what, four months away, right? Five months away? And let's pretend that you're going to stay in town for Thanksgiving. And you are going to be thinking about who are you going to invite for Thanksgiving lunch. Most of the time, that's my wife's department. And that might be the case in most of our families. And my wife will say, well, should we invite uh, so-and-so and so-and-so? I said, yeah. She said, well, maybe not. Let's, let's not. And my opinion doesn't really count a whole lot sometimes. So, uh, so, let's, so let's pretend that you're planning Thanksgiving lunch. And you're running through the list of family members and neighbors. Is there anyone in your family that you would rather not have Thanksgiving lunch at? Or rather that, that you would rather them not be at your home for Thanksgiving lunch? You know that your cousin Vinny and your Aunt Sally don't really get along. So why would you have them around the same table? You know that your Uncle Harry talks about politics and nothing else, and he's kind of off on left field, and you don't want to open that can of worms. And maybe there's somebody that just kind of has lived a life that doesn't really fit with your family's philosophy. and Maybe you just don't want them around Thanksgiving lunch. What if you hired somebody to write your family story? What if they were researchers and they could go back in these ancestral websites and go to shipping logs and all kinds of things and international lists of people and, and dig up all of your family tree stuff and they're going to write your story? And would you tell them to leave out certain individuals because it doesn't kind of paint your family in a favorable light? You might recall about three or four years ago, a well-known celebrity, I'm not going to name him, but a well-known celebrity hired one of these companies to do research on his family. And this research company found out that an ancestor of his was a slave owner. And he told this research company that may not become public knowledge. Well, it became public knowledge. <laughs> And then he came out and apologized publicly that he tried to squash the fact that some of his ancestors were slave owners. Or would you tell the author to kind of embellish things, make certain people look better than what they actually were? There is an interesting story in my family tree. It's a scandal. It's one of those stories that we might be tempted to want to leave out of the official family tree. It's about Aunt Alice. So I want to take a few minutes and tell you about Aunt Alice. There are several facts that we know about Aunt Alice, and there are some things that we just have to kind of piece together, okay? So Aunt Alice was the younger sister of Aunt Lizzie. Lizzie's name was Elizabeth, affectionately known as Lizzie. And they were living in the UK, the United Kingdom. And Aunt Lizzie traveled from the UK to South Africa in 1906. Now, we know that from the records. And she met a South African-born man by the name of Cowley, C-O-W-L-E-Y. I've never heard that name anywhere else except in this family line, Cowley. And he, like I said, he was born and raised in South Africa. 
and they fell in love and got married in, uh, it was around 2000, I mean 1909, I think, uh, or 1910. And we believe that Aunt Alice, somewhere around 1910, or maybe early 1911, traveled to South Africa alone. And she was pregnant. And she was not married. Shortly after arriving in South Africa, she gave birth, but not in Johannesburg. Now, this is interesting because Lizzie and her husband were living in a suburb of Johannesburg called Turfentine. Now, I was born in Rosettenville, which is a neighboring suburb of Johannesburg, obviously about 80 years apart. No, it was about 50 years apart. And, um, but Alice gave birth to her son in Krugersdorf, which is a town about 30 miles away, a small little town about 30 miles west of Johannesburg. Now, we know that for fact, but my historical mind asks why. Why? First of all, did Lizzie come to South Africa pregnant, alone? Why was she taken about 30 miles away to some little crossroads town to give birth? Okay. So she gives birth, and we don't know the circumstances of the naming of her son, but he's named Cyril Norman. My father's name is Norman Cyril. Okay. It's interesting. Sometime after the birth of Cyril Norman, Alice gives up her son to her oldest sister, Lizzie, to raise. Lizzie and Cowley adopt him, give him the name Smith. I'm not a biological Smith, which is okay. And a couple of years later, Lizzie, I mean, Alice returns to the UK, never to be heard of again. He just drops off the map. No records. So Cyril, my grandfather, grows up. Lizzie and Cowley are his parents. And um, my, my father is born in 1933. He's the youngest of nine children. Uh, the fourth born is a girl. The first three are boys. The fourth born is a girl. And... My grandfather names her Alice, probably in memory of Aunt Alice, because everyone knew about Aunt Alice. She lived in the UK. Nobody had ever met her. Uh, my father gets married somewhere in the 1950s, and around that same time, my grandfather wanted a birth certificate. Apparently, he had never seen his birth certificate before, but he needed, he needed his birth certificate. So he went to the government and got records and eventually got his birth certificates, and then he found out that Aunt Alice was actually his biological mother. Wow. That's when the family learned. And there's a lot of facts that we know, but there's a lot of things that we don't know. And so the the, the theory here is that Alice fell pregnant in the UK. In fact, this is a story. I spoke to my dad just, and dad, if you're watching, I love you. Um, I spoke to my dad just about four or five days ago just to go over the story again and, and, 
and he says, this is the best recollection that I have from the dialogue. And I actually asked him if I can share the story, and he said, fine, and my dad loves the Lord today. He said, the family believed that Alice was, Alice conceived out of wedlock in the UK. The family were terribly embarrassed. They shipped her off to South Africa to have the baby, to give it up to her older sister, Lizzie. They took her to some little remote town to give birth and then shipped her back to the UK and never disclosed to anyone that Cyril was actually Alice's son. Would Alice be invited to Thanksgiving lunch? Would we want to leave Aunt Alice off of our family tree? A bigger question for me, would we want to leave off the family members that treated Alice the way that some of us think Alice was treated? Would we want to keep them off the family tree? God invited or God inspired about 40 different authors to write his family story. Today we call that God's word, about 40 different authors. And four of those authors we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were, were called to be followers of Jesus. They were the one, two of the 12, 12 disciples. And they lived with Jesus for three years, and so they knew Jesus intimately. And they wrote the family stories, the, the family story of Jesus. Uh, Mark, scholars think, was probably a young man, maybe a teenager during Jesus' ministry. We know that Mark's mother was involved in supporting Jesus, and so that's where Mark got a lot of his information, first-hand, first-hand knowledge. Uh, Luke came after the fact, but Luke was a phenomenal researcher, spoke to people, listened to people, researched. Most, even secular historians, believe Luke is one of the best historians of the first century. So what's interesting is that Mark and John do not mention the birth of Jesus in great detail. In fact, they start their stories about Jesus when Jesus is an adult. Luke goes into great detail about the birth of Jesus, and in chapter 3, Luke lists the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Jesus and Joseph and goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew starts off right from chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus, and Matthew starts at Abraham and moves forward to the birth of Jesus. Now what's interesting about Matthew is that Matthew lists four women in the genealogy. Now, this is not a sexist message, okay? But it was the standard practice of those days that just the men would be listed in the family line. And that's what Luke does. Luke, Luke, except for Mary, Luke mentions no females. But Matthew lists four females besides Mary. And all four of these females, we kind of scratch our heads and think, why would Matthew include them in the family line of Jesus. They're kind of unsavory characters. He didn't have to. Kind of just keep going, Matthew. Just, just list the men after men after men and men. Don't go on these little side thoughts and list these, bring these women into Jesus' family tree. And so we this morning are going to ask ourselves why. Why did Matthew include these four women in Jesus' family tree? You with me? All right. So let's read. Matthew Chapter 1, 
Reading from verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Terah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. So there's the first lady that Matthew lists in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar. You can read about her in Genesis chapter 38. I want to take just a very brief side thought on interpreting Scripture. Interpreting Scripture, there's a whole science to it, and I'm just going to give you just one of the little lessons in interpreting Scripture. We have to differentiate in Scripture between descriptive and prescriptive. When God says, you shall not steal, that is prescriptive. God is prescribing something. He's telling us what we should do or should not do. When, uh, when Jesus says, go and sin no more, which he said multiple times, that is prescriptive. When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it, gouge it out, we believe that is descriptive. There's a lesson we can learn from it. Jesus isn't really intending for you to pull your eye out. So this story about Tamar is a bizarre story. I need to warn you with parents, it's probably at least PG-13. It's a bizarre story. It is descriptive. God isn't recommending this behavior. He's just telling us a story that we can learn lessons from. And so Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Judah. It was very, very important in those days that families have children, especially male heirs, to carry on the family line. And Judah married a Canaanite, which is another story. They weren't supposed to marry outside of the Hebrew family, and Judah married, married, married a Canaanite woman, and he had three sons, um, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Ur married Tamar. But before they could have children, the Bible tells us Ur was wicked and God killed or had Ur killed. And so Judah goes to Tamar and says, can you marry my second son, Onan, and have children by him so that you can ensure that there's a family line? And so Tamar marries Onan, and before they can have children, Onan's wicked in God's sight and Onan dies. So Judah says to Tamar, can you stick around a few more years because my youngest son, uh, Sheila, is growing up and it's going to take a few years. Can you hang around and then marry him and ensure that there is a family line? And so as the years go by, and we don't know all of the pieces to this kind of crazy story, but as the years go by, uh, Judah's maybe getting on in years and Tamar might be getting on in years and, and Maybe there's problems with uh, Sheila, the youngest son. So Tamar devises this plan. And she knows that Judah is going to be coming along this road one day, and so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah and Tamar spend the night together. And she conceives. 
well, after the night, Judah goes on his way and thinking that he had just been with a prostitute and a few weeks later, Judah gets word that Tamar is pregnant and he's mad. And then Tamar sends him a message and discloses the fact that she is, that he's the father. Now, this is a bizarre story, right? And Judah is actually heartstruck because he recognizes that Tamar, whether we agree with the behavior or not, Judah recognizes that Tamar did this with a motive to ensure that Judah had a family line. Matthew didn't have to tell us about Tamar. Okay? Mom! <laughs> Don't invite Aunt Tamar to Thanksgiving lunch. You know what her and Uncle Judah did. We don't want that to become Thanksgiving fodder. Would we invite Tamar to Thanksgiving lunch? Why did Matthew have to include Tamar in the line of Jesus? Let's read on. Second one. Matthew 1 verse 4, And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, that's not Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. You can read about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. The nation of Israel have spent their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They're about to, to conquer Canaan. They're about to enter the promised land of Canaan. And Joshua's wanting to find out about Canaan, and especially Nineveh, I mean Jericho, the first city, uh, about its fortifications and its soldiers and defenses, etc., etc. And so he sends spies into the city of Canaan, I mean Jericho. And while the Hebrew spies are in Jericho, uh, the authorities find out about these Hebrew spies. Now, we need to realize that, that the Canaanites knew the Hebrews were coming. And they were afraid because they had heard about the Hebrew God. And so the city is on edge. And they hear that there's spies in the city. And the whereabouts of these spies is found out. And the officials, the police, or the military, soldiers, go and track down the spies. And Rahab happens to have a home that's built into the city walls. And she takes in the spies and she hides them. Now, Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. Six times she's mentioned as a prostitute. The other two times as an innkeeper. She might have been both. And she hides the spies. She actually kind of connives a scheme. She hides the spies. The soldiers move on, and she lets the spies go, and they go back to Joshua, and the commitment that they make to Rahab, when the city is conquered, they will spare Rahab's life. In fact, Rahab clearly comes to faith in Jehovah God. And Rahab is spared. The city has conquered. Everyone else is annihilated. Rahab and her family are spared. And Rahab is welcomed into the Israelite family. And then she's listed in the family line of Jesus. Mom, let's not invite Aunt Rahab to Thanksgiving lunch. You know what her profession was. We don't want our little cousins have to hear about some of her stories, do we? Would you invite Rahab to Thanksgiving lunch? 
why, Matthew, would you include Rahab in Jesus' family tree? You didn't have to. You could have just moved on. <laughs> Next one. Matthew 1, verse 5, the second half of verse 5, and says, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. You can read about Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 through 4. Ruth is a lovely love story. Lovely story. Elimelech and Naomi were Hebrews. There was a famine in the land, and so they decided to travel to Moab. We don't know the circumstances. The Moabites and the Israelites weren't always the best of friends. Their ancestral heritage actually can be traced back to Abraham, so they are kind of related ancestrally. But they traveled to Moab, and they've got two, two sons, and their sons marry Moabite women. Now, that's another problem, but we don't know all of the pieces of the puzzle. And Naomi's husband dies, and both of her sons die. So the three women are left. Ruth, her two Moabite daughter-in-law, I mean Naomi, and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Opa. And Naomi is concerned because she needs male protection. And again, this hasn't been sexist, but it's just a known fact of those days that women actually married, yes, some of them for love, but some of them because they wanted and needed the protection of the male and the income of the male. And Naomi is concerned, and she's concerned about her daughter-in-laws, that they're all now husbandless. So Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, a Moabite daughter-in-laws, Basically, she says, I'm releasing you from any responsibility to me as your mother-in-law. I want you to go back to your people because I'm going back to my people. And Orpah says, okay, and there's nothing negative about that. Naomi released her, and Orpah goes, goes back to her people. But Ruth says, I will not. Ruth says, I will stay with you, and I will travel with you back to your people. And so Naomi and Ruth travel back, and Naomi's home, hometown is Bethlehem, and they get to Bethlehem. Now they're impoverished. They have nothing. And the only way that they can support themselves is if Ruth goes and gleans in other people's fields, which was a common practice. In fact, a generous farmer would often purposely leave a lot of their crops behind after they've harvested so that the poor could come behind and glean for free off of their fields. It's a wonderful practice. And Ruth, a godly woman, needs to support her mother-in-law, Naomi. So she goes and gleans in his fields. Boaz is one of the farmers. And he sees Ruth and thinks, mm, that foreign lady is pretty cute. Even though she speaks funny, and he finds out about Ruth, and the long story short is that Boaz and Ruth get married. Wonderful, wonderful story. Because Ruth has pagan origins. Mom, don't invite Aunt Ruth to Thanksgiving dinner. She talks funny. She eats funny things. I had been in the States only a few months, and I was an associate pastor, and I'd spoken a couple of times in church, and, uh, and after this one time, I've been there about six months, this lady comes to me afterwards and she says, I understood every word this morning. Thank you, Jesus. 
<laughs> I'm getting through. <laughs> uh, we understand accents, don't we? If you ever think I say something kind of off-color, it's the accent. That's all it is, really. But why would Matthew include Ruth in the family tree? He didn't have to. But he does. So let's move on. Last one. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't that an interesting way of listing somebody in your family tree? In fact, Matthew doesn't even mention her by name. And who is she? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. In fact, Matthew doesn't even say that this is Solomon's mother, clearly. He says, David was a father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is one of those huge, dark chapters in David's life. David was king. He is successful. Everyone loves him. Uh, he's kind of riding the crest of the wave of success in the nation, uh, going from battle to battle to battle, defeating everyone, extremely popular. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11 that in the springtime when men went off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. Now that might be his first mistake. And he's restless one night. Maybe because he realizes he should be in battle where, where his men are and he's staying at home. David had everything he wanted. He had wealth. He had people to advise him. He had strong armies. He had multiple wives at this time. He wanted for nothing. And David is walking around the rooftop of his palace. And that's innocent. And he looks and he sees right next to his palace is a residence. And on the rooftop is this woman bathing. And that's not a sin either, right? The look of chance. But David looks longer than he should have. Second mistake, probably. David then inquires about this woman. Third mistake. Just leave it alone, David. David inquires about her and finds out that she is Uriah's wife. Uriah's a Hittite. We don't know the circumstances of Uriah coming into the, the Israelite family. He's a Hittite. But he's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And David knows that Uriah is out on the battlefield. So he sends for Bathsheba. Now we can poke some criticism at Bathsheba, and maybe this is unfair. Why is she bathing naked on a rooftop? Uh, why does she go to the king? She could have said no. Well, people generally don't say no to the king. She spends a night with David. Maybe before sunrise, in dark, she slips out of the palace and goes back to her home. And any servants that would have seen would have been zipped up, right? Say nothing. A few weeks later, David gets a little note. Three words that maybe have caused many a men to break out into a cold sweat. I am pregnant. So David devises this plan. He calls Uriah from the battlefield in a pretense that he wants to find out about how the battle's going. And Uriah tells him. And Uriah sends him home. Go home. Uh, relax at home with your family and come back tomorrow and we'll dialogue some more. And, but Uriah doesn't. In fact, Uriah at this stage is more honorable than what David was. And Uriah stays outside sleeping with the servants. 
David finds out and brings Uriah in the next day and says, why didn't you go home and spend the night with your, home, with, with your family and with your wife? And Uriah says, how can I do that? So when my men are out there on the battlefield living in tents and hard floor and eating meager rations, how can I go home and enjoy the pleasures of home? What a character. So David comes up with a second plan to try and hide his sin. He makes Uriah drunk thinking that this will get Uriah home. But Uriah doesn't go home. David finds out and brings, David, brings Uriah back in and writes a note and closes it and seals it with his royal seal and says, take this and give it to Joab, General Joab. Uriah doesn't know that he's carrying his death warrant. And Uriah delivers a note and Joab opens it And it says, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is fiercest and then pull back the support. Make sure he dies. That's exactly what happens. And word gets back to David that the battle was fierce and Uriah died and David kind of turns on the crocodile tears and mourns the death of Uriah. After a few weeks of mourning, he calls for Bathsheba, and he takes in Bathsheba, this lowly widow who's now pregnant. And David thinks he's created the perfect cover-up for a despicable series of acts. Except for one thing, and some of you might know how that chapter ends, right? The chapter ends, 2 Samuel chapter 11, but the thing that David had done, what, you tell me, displeased the Lord. I'm not going to go into chapter 12, but chapter 12 is David's uh, repentance. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. I'd encourage you to read it. But this is a horrible experience. It's a horrible series of events that David gets himself into, and he digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper into this mess. Why, Matthew, would you include Bathsheba or even reference her in Jesus' family line? Why just leave her off? Would you invite Bathsheba to Thanksgiving lunch? And so we ask Matthew, Matthew, why do you include this woman? We have, we have a woman who disguises herself as a prostitute. We have another Canavan woman who is a prostitute. We have a funny-speaking foreigner, and we have an adulteress. Why invite them, include them in Jesus' family tree? Well, to understand this, we need to visit a little town called Capernaum. It's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. But as an adult, he makes Capernaum his hometown. And one day, Jesus, in, early in his ministry, has called a couple of disciples. He hasn't called, called them all yet. And he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he stops at his hometown of Capernaum. He gets off the boat, and there is a tax collector sitting at a table. One of the most despised classes of people in all of Israel. Tax collectors were, I'm not sure if hated is a kind enough word, maybe, maybe it's not even a hard enough word. Tax collectors, Jews, had colluded with the pagan Romans to extort money from the Jews. And the only way that the tax collector made money was to take more taxes than what the Romans demanded. And they became extremely wealthy. 
but nobody invited tax collectors to Thanksgiving lunch. The only gatherings that tax collectors were invited to were with other tax collectors, or the worst of the worst of society. Jesus walks up to this tax collector's table and probably pays the tax or has one of the disciples pay the tax. The story is told of a, uh, one of these mighty men competitions. You know, the world's toughest man and they flipping logs and carrying boulders and doing all kinds of crazy things and they title someone the world's strongest man. And after this competition, the one of the competition takes an orange and squeezes it and squeezes it and squeezes it and all of the juice comes out and squeezes it till there's nothing left and then invites the audience, can anyone come and get any more oranges from this orange? And I think he gives some prize. So this little skinny guy goes up and takes the orange and squeezes it and several drops drop out. I said, how did you do that? And the guy says, I'm a tax collector. Tax collectors were squeezing the life out of the Jews of the time. And Jesus walks up to this tax collector and says, I want you in my family. The worst of the worst of society. In fact, I don't just want you in my family. One day I'm going to ask you to write my family story. Let's read Matthew chapter 9. So why does Matthew include these unsavory characters? Because Matthew is an unsavory character himself, or was. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I paraphrase it, right, by saying, I want you to join my family. Follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, now let me pause there, the New International Version says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Okay? So while Jesus is reclining at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat? with tax collectors and sinners, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn from this what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew knew exactly what it was like to be a Tamar, to be a Rahab to be an Aunt Alice, to be a despised member of society. And holy God walks up to Matthew and says, I want you in my family. And that's why Matthew wrote his story and God inspired him. And that's why Matthew included these individuals, male or female, that might not fit well into some of our gatherings, who might not engender the best conversations that we would want. As young people, we might not want our kids hanging around with their kids. But Jesus invites Matthew into his family. And Jesus invites us into his family. As bad as our family tree might be, 
he invites us. I wish I could go back to Aunt Alice. In fact, my great-grandmother. And tell Grandma Alice, God, God loves you. Even though you're pregnant out of wedlock, even though your family seems to have shunted you around the world to hide the shame, God loves him. God will never be embarrassed to call Alice my daughter. God loves you. God loves this church. We're a part of the family of God. And even through the rough stuff, and even through the family garbage that we go through, and even though things get thrown at us as families from our in-laws and our outlaws and our children sometimes, and even spouses and all of that mess, God loves us. And God is never, never going to shun us. And God invites the Tamars of this world and the Ruths and the Matthews and the Grandma Alice's to be a part of his family. There's five quick things that we can learn from this, and then I'm going to read just a few verses and we'll wrap this up. So what do we learn from this? Five quick things. I'm just going to list these quickly. First of all, God's family is a peculiar family. We are peculiar people. In fact, the word peculiar is mentioned seven times in the King James Version of the Bible, and the word peculiar is translated in the New International Version as possession. We are God's possession. You are God's possession. Isn't that wonderful? You are His if you've accepted Christ as a Savior. Second, we are all sinners. We all need a Savior, every single one of us. Even those Pharisees who despise Jesus going to eat at Matthew's house. The worst skeletons, number three, the worst skeletons in our closet, the worst things that we can imagine that might happen to us or our family should never keep us from experiencing the joy of the Lord. But the devil will try and convince you that they will. They should never. Number four, you are not automatically in God's family. Just because you might have been raised in the church, born into the church, baptized as an infant, even if you come here day after day, week after week, you, you have to accept Jesus when he invites you into his family. Fifth point, we are not left in our sin. Matthew was called out of his sin. Matthew was called out of his shame. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus forgave her and said, go and sin no more. We are all called to transformed and changed lives. Every one of us. Not too long after Matthew joined the family of Jesus and started following Jesus, he, he heard Jesus say some words that he wrote in chapter 11, words that have inspired and encouraged millions and millions of people for 2,000 words, years, and I want to close with this. Jesus said these words, and I think of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Alice and Matthew, and, and think of someone in your family. Think of maybe, put, put yourself into what Jesus is saying. Now, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I wonder if Grandma Alice, when she was on that boat going back to the UK, having left her son in South Africa, I wonder if she was at rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you part of God's family this morning? Maybe you've never invited Jesus into your life, into your world. I want to encourage you this morning to invite him into your life. Take that step. There are people at the altar that will pray with you if you want to invite Jesus into your life. If you want to come and talk to me afterwards or a pastor about inviting Jesus into your life, we would, we would love to pray with you. But maybe this morning you just feel battered and bruised and maybe you're in Alice that you just feel like you've made mistakes and, and your family or people around you are just not allowing you to get victory through these mistakes and you just want to find rest in the Lord. Maybe you want to recommit your life to God. You are His possession. I invite you to reconnect with Him this morning. The worship team are going to lead us in a wonderful prayer, a wonderful song. I encourage you to sing this from your heart and respond to the Lord as He leads you. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.
possession you do not have to measure up to any standard before God will invite you into his family I want you to know that as you are with all of the mess with all of the shame all of the guilt there's nothing you have to measure up to God invites you come but he doesn't leave us there he sets us free transforms our life cleanses us from the inside out we're his children amen he split the sea so we could walk right through it amen let's pray father i pray a blessing over each family represented yeah i pray for the single moms the single dads those that maybe on in yours who have lost a loved one Pray for the young families with kids who are teenagers and they're struggling through issues. I pray that you would wrap your loving arms, your fatherly arms around every one of us. Remind us that you love us and that you care for us. Remind us, Lord, that you don't want to leave us in our guilt and our shame, that you call us out of it and you set us on a new path, on a victorious path. And I pray for those that are struggling in this experience right now, that you would somehow break through into them and give them the victory in Jesus that you offered to us. Go with us into the rest of this day. Bless each family, Lord, again, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, God bless you. Amen.